Podcast One Production. Hi, my name's Gary Megan, and this is a plate to call home conversations with fascinating people, all centered around food. Today, I'm speaking with Cedar Anderson of Flow Hive, who's changing the way the world harvests honey. It's an idea that was a long time coming, but with the help of the community on a crowdfunding website, he took his and his father's idea and he turned it into a honey revolution. Take a listen, and who knows, at the end, you might just want to be part of that revolution yourself. You're mad about honey. That's right. Right? So what's Flow Hive all about? So Flow Hive is my father and I and myself's invention, and we designed it because we were harvesting honey and selling it to the local shop in that traditional way where you open the hive and pull out all the frames and take those frames to your honey processing plant where you cut off the wax capping and go through that long labour-intensive process of centrifuging the honey and making a huge mess in the laundry. (laughs) Sticky business, basically. Very sticky business, up to your elbows in honey. Um doesn't go down very well with the wife when you, you leave this huge sticky mess in the, <laughs> in the laundry, but that's the way it's always done. And that brought about this idea of, hang on, there must be a better way than this because we're annoying the bees, we're uh, making a big sticky mess, we're, we're really disturbing their hive, and shouldn't there be a way where we can just turn a tap and the honey flows directly out of the box and into your jar? Yeah. And that's exactly what we said about inventing. It took a decade, but we got there. Wow, that's incredible. So is anybody else in the world doing this? Is there a tap-based system for hives or harvesting honey other than in a traditional sense? Do you know? Or are you the first? We're the first, and it was caused a real stir. So two years ago when we put it on crowdfunding, it absolutely went ballistic because it was really different and honey processing hadn't really changed for the last few hundred years. So... It really was a uh, a game changer in the industry. Yeah, groundbreaker. What made you put it on crowd on a crowdfunding site? Well, to me, I thought, well, there's multiple kind of ways you could take this product to market. We'd done a decade of inventing, and we had proved that it actually worked. And then it's like, how do we get this to market? We could go and pitch it to investors. We could try and flog it to a company. But to me, that would be kind of giving away the control and what I wanted was to to be free to do what we wanted with our invention yeah. and crowdfunding really allows you to do that because you can put an idea and the world either likes it or they don't Yeah, and we put it on there and it just went absolutely crazy. So what's the definition of crazy or ballistic? What happened? <laughs> uh, okay, so, so first... Uh, First thing we did was we dropped a video on Facebook that was basically saying, hey, everyone, we're launching on crowdfunding next week. Here's what we've invented. And just a little teaser. And in 30 hours, we had a million views. So wow. life wasn't the same after that. <laughs> <laughs> so what happened on crowdfunding? So when you put it on crowdfunding, what were you aiming to raise? And what was the, what, what was the idea? We're aiming to raise $70,000. And that was the legitimate amount we needed to tool up to produce our flow hive invention. Now, naive really to have such a small amount knowing what it takes now, but nevertheless, that was our that was our go no go target, and we hit it in um, in seven minutes. 
Wow. Seven minutes. So what are you thinking sitting in front of the computer looking at this GoFundMe page? You've hit your 70,000 in 70 minutes. Is your dad there? So we <laughs> You look uh, at each other going, uh, what have we done? I was actually in the middle of an ABC interview. So we thought we, we ought to get, get to the heart of the media. So we went to my grandfather's place in Canberra and we, we shipped um, you know some sticky frames of honey there and we put them into his hive and we were live on TV when we uh, pressed the go button on the crowdfunding. And in the background, while I'm still on interview, people are screaming, you've hit target, you've hit target. <laughs> and, and I just walked off out of the interview. It's just funny, they put that on TV, just me wandering off as I take the phone call. Love it. And then two hours later, we'd hit a million bucks and the thing just just steamrolled from there, okay. breaking a lot of crowdfunding. Records. So what you, you just said there that, Obviously, in hindsight, that's 70,000, which you anticipated you need to tool up and get your first flow hives off the ground. Uh, how long ago was that now? Two years. Two years ago. And you said, you were, were you underprepared? Did you not realise what it would cost to actually get this thing off the ground? Is that what, what you mean? Yeah, totally, totally underprepared. But I guess there's a scale. Like if we, if we got $70,000 of orders, we probably wouldn't have needed such a big team. Um, but there's so many costs that, you know, we didn't think of at the start. Customer support, for instance. Yeah. I mean, where they're thinking, what could go wrong? We've made this thing perfectly. Yeah. But, of course, you need a whole dedicated customer support team. You need an IT team. You need a legal team. You need a, a <laughs> you know, 30 people working really hard in order to achieve the goals. Right. So you've gone from, and try and get straighten this out for me, Supplying markets. Where, where are you based? Up in Byron, is that right? Yep, Byron So Bay. whereabouts in Byron? So we're just just on the uh, south side of Byron near Brokenhead. Okay. So and beautiful part of the country. It it's is. It's quiet. People, people in the rest of the world maybe don't really understand what that looks like. Can you explain that for us? Well, the office we have is more like a, a beautiful house. So we, um, we work in a very homely environment and then outside there's a, a view where you can watch the whales, you can see down onto sort of flatlands where there's the melaleuca flowering and there's agriculture like um, macadamias and sugarcane. Mm, beautiful. So before this flow hive really kicked off, did you? do I imagine that you and your dad, was your dad a farmer or was he involved in the honey business or was it something that you decided that you were going to get into the honey business to sell honey locally? Is that what the whole drive was to start with? So I was managing a small scale commercial apiary, which meant basically having 30 hives, harvest some honey, sell it to the local shop. And that was where I was scratching my head going, hang on, I'm paying myself $5 here and the whole thing is is a lot of hard work and, and annoyance. Yeah, but how did you find yourself in that job? What, what had you done previously to get yourself into doing that? So... We'd grown up with beehives. My uncles kept bees, my brothers kept bees. So it was just a bit of a family tradition, really. So when it came time to what do we do with the land we're on, it's like, well, bees. Bees is the obvious answer. So so um, that's where the scaling up the apiary yeah, came. Yeah, started off with. And whose land was that? Was that yours, your dad's? The... No, it was rented land. It was rented land. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So you'd started up this proposition, you're supplying honey locally, you're working hard and thinking, gee, this is not exactly what I thought. Is that where we're at at this stage? Yeah, well, I guess I always, with everything, I'm thinking there must be a better way than this. So, so although we're producing honey 
as soon as I think there must be a better way, the whole thing becomes hard because it's like, well, what am I doing this for? There's got to be a better way than this. Yeah. And where did your research lead you to start off with? I mean, how did you start thinking, okay, because if it had been done the same way for hundreds of years, you're really taking it off in a d- different direction. Nobody's thinking about this, obviously. Nobody's thinking, how do I get the honey out of the, out of the frames more easily? Yeah, funnily enough, we found out later that there was an attempt at a similar thing in Spain, but it failed. And I know why it failed now, because I tried similar things over the prototyping because there were so many failures of, no, that didn't work, like making little piston plunger things that push honey out of cells and trying to suck honey out of the, the back of a hexagon matrix. And the I guess the, the breakthrough moment there was was thinking, well, maybe it doesn't have to be a hexagon matrix all the time. It can shift into into something else when it's time to harvest the honey. And that's what was the game changer that nobody had okay. done So before. when you talk about a hexagon matrix, now you've just gone off on a tangent. So everybody's going, I think I know what that means. In a hive, that little matrix of, is, are they cells that the bees construct out of wax? Is that what you mean? That's right. So the bees make a, a honeycomb matrix, if you like, which is that typical honeycomb pattern you see. Yeah. And that's where they store their honey and also raise their brood and their babies. So mm. getting honey out of that structure is hard because the viscosity and surface tension yeah. is such that even if you cut the capping off the front, when bees have finished their their uh, dewatering the honey, yeah. they then put a wax sheet on the front. That's right. And even if you cut that off and cut the back off and tip honey, if the honey's properly ripe, it won't actually flow out of that structure. So, so it just sits there like a big sticky mass. It is. In which fact, actually is making my mouth water because I'm thinking about it. And I think in many people's minds that, that sounds delicious, doesn't it? It absolutely is delicious. And, and honeycomb is something to, to yeah. really be so, enjoyed. So from kind of early man and foraging, I mean, that's we, we would be kind of clicked into that, linked into that. And so we would have exported the bees for thousands of years in much the same way. So really just kind of scooping into that wax structure and just eating the honey, spitting out the wax. Absolutely. It goes back some 8,000 years as cave paintings of people harvesting honey and humans and agriculture have evolved together since then. When was the point where, because 10 years is a long time developing a product, isn't it? And in the meantime, you're still selling honey in a traditional way? That's right. The, the reason why it's 10 years is because of the feedback loop is slow. If, if I make something, it might be three, four, five months before I know whether the bees think it's a good idea or not. Okay. So, you know, if you were designing a, a kettle, you can test it and it works or it doesn't. But in this case, you've got to get the bees' approval. Right. Now, now you just introduced up. When you said feedback loop, I'm thinking up loop. I'm thinking customers, people. And you're talking about bees. Yeah, that's So what, right. what do you mean you've got to get the bees' approval? Well, for instance, at one point I was thinking, well, I'll design this um, matrix of cells for the bees to put honey in and I don't want them to cap it because that's going to help me get the honey out. So, so that then I would I'd put um, some silica material around the surface of every cell and see if that material actually stopped the bees from capping it. And then some months go by and you go, well, that was a failure, move on. 
Right. And and when you say it was a failure, they just cap it. They just go, no, that silicon stuff. It's fine. That, that doesn't work, work for it. us and we're just going to cap it. Is that what would happen? Yeah. In, in that particular idea, I was trying to get them not to cap it, but they capped it anyway. Yeah. Because, because surely it's a, you, you're fighting something that's not thousands of years old, but now millions of years old. You know, how do you stop a bee from capping something when it's, it's programmed into its DNA, I'd imagine? That's right. So luckily for us, we moved on from that where we could, we could design a system that didn't matter whether it was capped or not. So now the bees fully ripen the honey and we simply drain it out from beneath their feet and they're standing on that capped surface while the honey's draining away. And they don't have a natural in- inclination to build a new structure or go somewhere else or cap that little cell off. Interestingly enough, um, bees, rather than being programmed to make honeycomb hexagon matrix, they actually seem to be, from, from my experience of experimenting, they'll use what they've got to the best of their ability. So hexagons are the way to use less um, wall area. So it's the most efficient structure in terms of wax to storage. Um, but if you then give them guides, that then they will make a square honeycomb. So that says to me they're not programmed to make hexagon structures at all, but to do the best with what they've got. So they're kind of intuitive and in saying, well, I don't need – they're essentially as a – a community saying, well, we've got these structures or these walls, we don't need to do it. So somewhere along the line, there's, there's messages being passed along between bees with different instructions, right? That's the absolutely extraordinary thing. It's like if you look at one bee, it's not controlling the hive and the queen certainly isn't because she's a slave to egg laying. Mm. But somehow there's a group consciousness, it's almost acting as one organism where they do make decisions they make all sorts of decisions of, of where to go to, to start a new hive. And building a hexagon cell, it might be um, 500 bees that have worked on that one hexagon cell. So how do they know, uh, you know where to go? But if you um, put obstacles in the way, they will change what they're doing and move around that shape, even though they're still just working together to produce that hexagon that cell. That one cell. So how does your system work then? How it works is we give them a partly formed hexagon cell, the hexagon cell matrix, and the bees then cover that all in wax and fix up all the, um, the joins in the cells. So then they've got hexagons they can deposit honey into yep. when they've then evaporated that nectar. And what do you mean by evaporating the ne- nectar? So it's quite a fluid... Uh, liquid is it that needs to yeah. lose some moisture so flower nectar is is very liquid it's just a um, dilute um, sugar solution along with all sorts of flavors mm. and then the bees reduce that down to the water contents typically below 20 percent yeah and how do they do that they do that first of all flying home from the flower they dribble the nectar down their tongue and they wave it in the air and uh Then the next thing they do is they pass that nectar to a receiver bee in the hive and each step along the chain is reducing that moisture content. And then finally they start fanning the honey in the hive to then dry it out further. And it takes a while to reduce it down 
to below 20%. When they're happy with that, they call that honey and that's their food storage and they cap that off for the um, times ahead when there's no flowers. Yeah. So in your in your hive structure, so they've now uh, fixed up all these little areas with their own wax, so they've kind of made it their own and yep. they're, they're comfortable with that. Is that what happens? Yep. That's it. So then we come along and we've designed a system so you can see into the hive and see how full the comb is. So you get a cross-section view and when you can see the honey is built up in that frame and you can see they've put the wax capping on, then you go, it's time to harvest that individual frame. And we've developed a tool that's like a long Allen key looking thing. And you put that into the top of the frame and you turn it a bit like um, turning a tap or that's quite firm to turn. And what that does is every single cell then splits inside the comb. So the bees are still standing on the wax capping, but inside the comb, the cells have turned from hexagons, from hexagons into a channel forming shape. So if you imagine half of the hexagon has moved downwards and the other half is still there, then you've got this zigzagging channel through the comb, which allows the honey to flow down that channel into the trough at the bottom and out the tube and directly into your jar. That is very clever. So it's a kind of turnkey that just a little, like a jigsaw that just reforms that structure so that you've got a channel where the honey flows through. That's it. So it's quite simple, really. Well, not really, not very simple at all. Because <laughs> what I'm thinking is at some point, you, you must have gone, that's how we're going to do it. Well, because that's an idea that's not just, you know, that's a, that's a pivotal moment, isn't it? Where somebody sat there, whether it's you or your dad, I mean, tell yep. us where you've gone, I think this is going to work. This is what's going to make it work. So I had the original idea of, hey, we could make this a structure that it, that is not hexagon cells when you're harvesting the honey, but changes back into a hexagon structure when it's time for the bees to mm. reuse that. Now, I was trying to achieve that in a horizontal fashion, which involved diaphragms and all sorts of things. And while it worked, over a couple of strong coffees one morning, my dad said, hang on, how about if we did it in this direction? I dropped everything I was doing in an instant, rushed into the shed and started prototyping a new design. And that's the design we've ended up with today. And it's far more efficient. There's less space used in the hive and it, only uses gravity to get the honey to flow down and into your jar. Yeah, that's amazing. So who takes the credit for actually coming up with the idea, your dad or you? Or did you share it? Yeah, <laughs> we, we, we share it. So it's a, a co-invention. <laughs> that's absolutely fabulous. It, it, in all honesty, that, that surely, you know, in terms of groundbreaking, it's incredible because it's, you know, it's, it's something that maybe you'd set a group of engineers to task over and they'd slave over the idea to try and make it work. And, and you did it in a shed in Byron. That's right. And with very limited um, tools as well. I mean, <laughs> I, I lived in that shed for, for 15 years with my partner, right? And the, uh, the kitchen tools were often the workshop tools. Yeah. And the, um, the drill I used for prototyping was one I scored from beside the road. That yeah. was my life. Are you the weird B-man of uh, Byron? Just out of curiosity. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean that in an insulting way. I mean that. So you'd, you'd, uh, you'd think, oh, yeah, he plays around in his shed a lot. He's trying to come up with an idea to harvest honey. Or was this like top secret all the way? It was top secret all the way. Now, <laughs> so, so I was the guy who said, I'm working on an invention. 
And I said, what is it? Can't tell you. <laughs> and uh, I thought I was much closer. So unfortunately, that time went on for years to the point where it got quite grueling with people going, so what's the invention? <laughs> I'm like, oh, I can't tell you. And, uh, and uh, eventually, as, as it got closer, I started saying, well, it's about honey. And people started thinking, hmm, what's that about? And um, we managed to keep it tight, which was an extraordinarily hard task. And you don't know whether you're just another hopeful inventor whiling away in the shed and you're actually making something that the world never wants. But lucky for us, it was warranted to keep it that secret because the first video we put out there went crazy. So whiling away in your shed for 10 years, that's a long time. Did you ostracize yourself from your wife? And Have you got kids? I do now. Yeah, you do? It didn't. Where's, where's dad or, you know, your wife knocking on the door of the shed going, come on, seriously, leave this thing alone. Did um, you feel like giving up at all? Well, luckily for me, my other half was very supportive and she did get frustrated at times, especially when there's, you know, no money to pay the bills and so on mm. and I'm distracted by this invention. Um, and the answer is no. I never thought about giving up. I guess I always had this idea that I could achieve what I set out to achieve. That's amazing, isn't it? Have you enjoyed the change? Because you've gone from whiling away in your shed for 10 years trying to make ends meet, you know, in a small community on the New South Wales coast. And now all of a sudden you're talking about $16 million worth of, of turnover in a company. That's massive. That's a big change, isn't it? It is. And I guess the answer would be it's extremely exciting and I love my life before, and it's great now, but I'm not sure whether I'd say the one now is more enjoyable than the old <laughs> it's life. It's just different, isn't it? But I suppose what you get to do is you get to what you love essentially. Do you, do you, is your obsession bees and honey? Is that what it is, or is it the invention? Is it the design? It's both. So it's invention and bees and honey. But I do come up with new inventions every day, so... At, at some point, I will be directing in attention that way. But for the moment, there's so much more to invent around the current invention. So. Yeah. So let's talk about this obsession with, with honey and bees. You know, what, what, does, it, what does it mean to us? Because we hear a lot of talk about uh, the threat to bees, the change in the environment, how sensitive they are. Do you know a lot about this? Yeah. Humans and honeybees go way back. So it's really important to, to us as, as a species to have the honeybees pollinating our agricultural crops. There is about 70% of our food types are pollinated by bees and the European honeybee, which is the one that produces this beautiful honey all around the world, is one of the most efficient pollinators we have. So there is um, lots of solitary bees, there is lots of native bees and there is, there's even bats and, and um, birds that do pollination. But if we didn't have the European honeybee, we would be in big trouble in terms of our food production. Yeah, and, and explain that. What does that mean? So um, almost all fruits and vegetables are pollinated by bees. So if, if we didn't have those honeybees working our crops, then we're going to lose a lot of what we see on the table today. And even if you're talking about beef, for instance, a lot of beef in, in other countries is fed alfalfa, which is pollinated by bees. So there's a ripple down effect that if they all the bees disappeared, it would be very hard for us to recover. Now, even if you um, can spare your fruits and vegetables, coffee is pollinated by 
bees. So I think that would strike a chord with a lot of people. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? And I've seen these, I mean, I've, I've seen it myself where I think it was Japan uh, had a terrible problem where they actually had ladies or people with little brushes in trees pollinating flowers by hand because they had this disaster um, and it made it ridiculous. Like all of a sudden, this globe, this environmental effect, is that literally what would happen? You'd have to find some weird and wonderful way of pollinating uh, our plants to grow our food. And I honestly don't think it's achievable. Well, in China, perhaps you can still get a bit of a crop by climbing up the trees with a <laughs> feather and some pollen that you've gotten from somewhere else and hand pollinating. It's um, really not doable on a large scale. Yeah, ridiculous. So what are the threats? So the threats to the bees are, are quite wide and varied and it's not any one particular thing. It is pesticides, it is management, it is diseases, but ultimately all rolled together, it's stress. So if you stress the honeybees by all of these factors, then you get a weakening to immunity, the same as what happens with us. And that weakening to immunity means you can get viruses taking over and colonies that are too weak, so pests take over. And then what you get is a loss of hives. And especially in uh, America and Europe, there's been extreme losses of hives where they've lost 50% of their hives. Yeah. And that's a lot. If you, if you lost that in any other farming sector, it would be ad absolutely astronomical. Now, bees, we're lucky. You can divide the colonies and work your way back up quite quickly. What's the, what's the ripple effect in terms of the panic in, say, an agricultural sector, say in the US or, or Europe, when that happens? Do, is it all hands on deck or is it, are they just ignoring it? It is all hands on deck. Um, bees have really hit the agenda in the last five, ten years. And it's been great to see because they do represent a bigger picture than just bees, honey production, they, or even food production. They represent our environment and the very matrix that we all completely depend upon. So bees become this icon of if we, if we lose the honeybee, we're all in trouble. But it's bigger than that. If we, if we lose the honeybee, then it says something really big about our environment that we all depend upon. Yeah, and what we're doing and everything else that's connected with it. Absolutely. But it's obviously, it's, a, it's almost like a canary in a cage in a sense, isn't it? It is, it is, and that's a, a great analogy. If, if the bees disappear, then we're in trouble. Yeah, absolutely. What are the, what are things that people don't know about bees that you love about bees? <laughs> I mean, you've already told us a couple of really interesting things. I mean, even that process of decision-making or whatever it is that they have is remarkable, isn't it? It really is. So, for instance, when bees go to find a new home, let's say your beehive's doing great and it's built up and the, um, what happens then is the old queen leaves with half the hive and that's their natural way to divide. It's called swarming. The scout bees, then they go off to find a suitable home and they actually vote. They have a democratic system. So, well, why do you think, oh, it's just a beehive? In there is is quite a amazing structure where everybody's got different jobs and, and there's these bees that run out and look for 
they might check that mailbox and they'll check that wall cavity and they'll check that tree hollow and then they'll come back and they'll make a decision. And if, if, they, if they get a majority out of the, let's say, 15 bees, scout bees vote that that's the place to go, then they'll all go there. So that speaks to the extraordinary kind of communication that's going on. But then you have a look at how they communicate every day in terms of, of flowers and where to find them and where to go. And what I've witnessed is they're telling such accurate information. It's astounding. And what, what I've seen right, is in my uh, shed, if I've made a big honey mess, the bees come, come looking for that. If I've got the roller door open and the bees come flying in and they find that honey and, you know, all of a sudden um, one's gone back to the hive, done a dance in, inside on the honeycomb surface, told the rest of the bees where the honey is, and all of a sudden there's hundreds of bees coming in to get that honey. Now, if I close the roller door but open the window, which is two metres away, all the bees come and they fly around in front of the door and say, hey, you said the roller door was open, and they fly back to the hive. Another two hours go by, another bee finds that the window next to the roller door is open, goes back to the hive, does a dance, and, and a few hours later you've got bees coming in the window. So that <laughs> says to me that the accuracy of information of where the food source is is profound. Yeah. And I think it's more than what's traditionally believed is is they use clever, clever mathematics with sun angles. And while they might do that, I think they've got um, memory which actually says, hey, it's this way, and they're able to transmit that very specific directions of go around the side of the shed and through the window rather than through the roller door. So they're extraordinary at, at telling information through their dances. Through the whole hive. It's, and, of course, that would apply to finding flowers, finding an, other food sources other than that spilt honey. And they, how, how far do they travel in, in a day? So bees typically will be foraging within, say, a three-kilometre radius. And if they're hungry, they'll go up to 10 kilometres so if you think about that, that's a huge amount of area they're covering for tiny little insects. The, to produce a kilogram of honey, they might visit four million flowers. <laughs> and the distance travelled, if you added up all of those bees' flights, would be several times around the world. Absolutely incredible. It's, it's astounding, actually, when you think about it. And now I'm thinking about the fact that they fill all these little cells with honey, which is all their hard work, putting food away for a rainy day, essentially, and then we take it away. How do they? How do? How do they continue to function and feed themselves and feed the larvae and the young when we're harvesting honey? How does that work? As a beekeeper, part of your role is knowing how much honey to harvest. So, with the flow hive, you can look in and see what's going on in that kind of cross section view of the frames that we've developed. You can see the honey expanding and contracting even over a single day and know whether they're bringing in honey or whether they're hungry and they're eating honey. So it's important for you to tune in with your bees and make sure there's honey stores for them because they need one whole comb of honey to produce a comb of babies. If you take a look at a bee colony, although they have specific jobs, they do change that job throughout their life cycle. 
And if there's not enough foragers, for instance, going and getting that nectar from yeah. those flowers, then some of the other bees will take on that job. So, so if you like, it's it's a structured but very fluid and changing yeah. environment. A reorganisation of the workforce. And I didn't ask how long does a bee live? So a worker bee, which are the ones that you see out foraging and yeah. collecting the flowers, they live for only about a month in peak honey season. And that's because they work so hard, they basically fly their wings off. Yeah. Whereas the queen bee, who's in there laying up to a couple of thousand eggs a day, can live up to six years. And the drones, which are the male bees, mm. they can live about six months. But the drones often get kicked out if there's not enough food because they actually don't do anything in the hive except for provide semen for a mating flight. Yeah. Where's, where's Flow Hive going to go in the future? What, what are the plans? Have you got a, a short-term goal that you're trying to hit now? So it's two years you've been going? Yeah. So where we're going in the future is continue to inspire a whole lot of new beekeepers. We copped a lot of flack for that in the beginning. I was going to ask that. How, how's the establishment in the beekeeping world? Is it a tight-knit community? It I is. suppose, and, and I'd imagine there'd be two levels, one on a, a kind of domestic level and one in, in terms of uh, agricultural production. There is. There's quite a split between backyard honey production and commercial honey production. People who have kept bees in the past or their dad kept bees or, or uh, were brand new to beekeeping absolutely love our invention because it's totally simplified what is a complex and messy process that needs equipment that's expensive and takes up space into you can just have your hive in your yard and tap beautiful honey straight into your jar ready for mm. the table. The um, reaction in the bee community has been divided. So while a lot of people love it, some people hate it. And I guess any disruptive technology is going to achieve that kind of response. Yeah, And our thing in reaction to that was just to say, look, we love all types of honey production. We love people who are looking after bees. We love people who are producing honey. Whichever way you want to do it, that's fantastic. We've invented this thing because we like it. And if you like it, that's great. If you don't, no problem. Have you had some interest from big producers in Australia where they've gone, we want to switch to your system? We are just gaining interest now. They've been slow on the uptake. They often purchase one or two hives just to try it. And now we're getting people who are starting to place in some bigger orders and some people in the USA, some people in Canada who are, who are now starting to scale up with the flow hive system and starting to produce honey in actually quite a different way. In what way is that? Well, the flow hive allows you to tap a single frame of honey into your jar. Now, we didn't realize this at first, but the feedback we're getting is the honey tastes better. And we've come up with a few ideas of why that is. But basically, there's two, two main reasons, we think. And that is you're not mixing all the honeys together. Now, in one frame, there was this dark honey. In another frame was this light honey. So being able to tap that directly into your jars means you can isolate those flavors instead of mixing them all together. It's like getting all of your ingredients if you're cooking and mixing it together into, into one stew. Yeah. You can't taste the individual flavors That's anymore. incredible. I never realized that. So you're almost, it's like a single malt. 
It's like a single vineyard. Better, isn't it, than that? And in one hive. And people are starting to describe it that way and market it that way. They're talking about it as, as if they're tasting whiskey or wine and the floral notes in the honey that seem to be more present. So I guess the, uh, the floral flavours are quite sensitive to oxidisation. They're sensitive to contact with um, things like metal. They're um, sensitive to that process of centrifuging where the strands of honey go through the air in extremely fine strands and that's where oxidisation can take place. And every process you take out of the equation, you retain some of those very fine flavours. That's really interesting. If that comes out of one hive, are the bees being deliberate, for example? Because obviously they're different. They're visiting different flowers. They're coming back to the hive, passing it through a number of bees, and the last bee, I presume, deposits that nectar which is the honey into the cell so bees typically will start filling the center of the hive and then they'll move outwards from there so what that means is as one flower source of nectar runs out they'll then be on to another one and bees do a really kind thing to the flowers and that's they will stay on one flower source and use that up until they move on the reason being is then the pollen from that flower goes to the right spot, which is that same species of flower. Yeah. While um, one beehive can forage to many different kinds of flowers at once, generally a bee in its life will stick to that one flower. So if there's a, a, a good flowering of Melaleuca on, you'll find you'll get mainly the bees of that hive going for that Melaleuca. Now, you cannot say 100% and no beekeeper ever can unless they're on a really large monofloral source, like a big area of alfalfa or something, where they pretty much know that it's only that. But what tends to happen in a flow hive is, yes, you'll get a different honey filling the centre frames to the outside frames, but then you go and you might harvest a, a centre frame, and now there's something completely different flowering. So you come back and you've got something completely different in this one, compared to the one next to it. That's fascinating. And time goes on and you get these amazing variations and you really get to taste all the different flavours of the seasons. Yeah. And I never would have realised that. I mean, and, and now it makes sense. If, they, if they're exhausting one particular source or pollen, it's like super pollinating a little area of one particular flower. Once that's gone, they're now going, let's go here and bringing back a different source. It's incredible, isn't it? So, it so if someone's what it's starting out, because there's a bit of interest out in the community, isn't there? I mean, there are chefs that are doing it. There are, you know, there are city rooftops with beehives on top and lots of people having a go. So what do you need to do? So our system involves getting one of our kits from our website and putting that together and then you have to install your bees. So the best time in Melbourne to do that would be in the springtime. Other places in subtropical regions, you can go all year round. But in colder climates, you need to do that in spring. So to install your bees, there's basically four main methods. One is you can order bees in the mail and they come as a package and you get in your bee suit and you shake that colony of bees into your hive and you shake that colony of bees into your hive and they start from that. Another way to go is you order what's called a nucleus hive, which is probably the easiest way to get going. It's a mini beehive that's already got frames in it and it's already got a functioning queen and colony. 
and you simply get in your bee suit and transfer those frames into your flow hive and away they go. Now, there's other ways like taking a split. So if somebody's got a, a thriving colony, you might uh, be able to ask them to, to have some of their frames to get started. Mm. You could choose to order a queen in the mail to go with that or you could let them rear their own queen if, the, if there's eggs under three days old. So there's a little bit to know about getting started. Swarm catching is another way to go for the, for the more adventurous. For the committed. And we've got videos about how to do this on our YouTube channel. People are sinking their teeth in and learning from the beginner beekeeping material we've, we've got now. It all sounds very easy, but you've got to be committed, haven't you? Absolutely. So although the flow hive invention makes it easy to harvest honey directly from your hive and you don't need a whole lot of the, the other equipment, bees still need looking after just as they always have. So your brood nest will need inspecting a couple of times a year in Australia, in Europe or America. It's much more demanding where there's more pests. So what you have to do to look after your bees will depend on where you are in the world and you'll need to get that knowledge from the local bee clubs and the forum and and that knowledge base that's all around you in your area. Yeah, and that's really important to note. So it's not a case of just putting something on your roof or sticking it in your garden and set and forget. It's not going to work that way. I would describe it as a lot less work than looking after chickens because you don't have to be there every day. <laughs> you, can, you can go away at times for months at, to, at a time without needing to actually be there to close the door and, and stop snakes from getting into your chicken pen. Absolutely love it. Can I ask how much it costs? So the Flow Hive ranges. And what I'll do is give you a specific discount coupon code, if you like, for your, for your podcast. Well, we can do that. Yeah, let's do it. Because I'd, I'd love to know if people listen to this and get stuck in. And if, if they do, then let the forum know that they heard about us, heard about you, heard about Flowhive on the podcast, because it'd love to, I'd love to know what the reach is. So where do, where do people go to find out about Flowhive and get all the information and start becoming you know, keen advocates for bees and, and honey that tastes delicious? So our website is the single place you go to, honeyflow.com. There's also links through to our forum and we have a Flowhive YouTube channel and lots of information on our Facebook page as well. So in fact, every Wednesday I get on there and I answer questions live. So you can tune in for, for half an hour of, of answering questions. You can write them below and I'll help you as you start as a beekeeper. You can also write into our support team. We've got a dedicated support team that answers questions every day for people to, to get going in beekeeping. I love it. You know what? It's been an absolute pleasure. I've learned a ton today about honey. And most of all, just because it's my cook's brain, I'm just going to obsess a little bit about some of those flavors that I'm tasting in that honey because that is just absolutely wonderful. So thanks for your time. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Gary. Here are my tips and tricks. And I love using honey in my cooking. And obviously, it's a great natural sweetener. And we're all kind of avoiding processed white sugar. It's the way to go. That's what they're telling us at the moment. And I'm sticking with it. So you can use honey. You can use agave, rice bran syrup, jaggery, for example, or palm sugar. They're all natural sugars. But honey has a delicious flavor. And one of my favorite recipes is just a simple baked muesli or granola. And what I do is I take a baking sheet. I put 
foil on, I put baking paper on, I set the oven at 160, and then essentially just sprinkle every kind of nut and seed and grain and oat that I fancy onto that tray. And you can use pumpkin seeds, you can use sunflower seeds, flaked almonds, coconut, whatever takes your fancy. And then drizzle with a little coconut oil, drizzle with a little honey, and then pop it in the oven for about eight to 10 minutes. And make sure you stir at least once or twice. Take it out, some chopped fruits, some raisins, apricots, some craisins, and I tell you what, absolutely delicious and it will beat anything that you buy hands down a plate to call home is recorded in the podcast one studios the show is produced by dave swalensky executive producer jamie chow special thanks to imogen thomas for the research and audio production by nick slater